Hello again, everybody. It's Ken Meyer. Welcome again to another edition of City Talk. And this is kind of a first in this broadcast because we have never had a repeat guest before, but we are this time. He is the very distinguished writer of baseball and baseball nostalgia, Larry Rutman. And Larry, it's it's great having you back again. Well, I'm happy to be here, Ken, because you're a great guy, and I'm very honored that I'm here for the second time. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm such a I'm such a blowhard. I think at one time would be. <laughs> well, I love baseball history. I I just love it, whether it's the Red Sox or the Yankees or whoever. And one of the things that we want to talk about is the Boston Braves and the Boston Braves Historical Society. Okay. And, and you were around when they were around. I was. So t- <laughs> tell us about growing up and, and being around when a fellow named Casey Stengel was the Braves manager. Oh, I'd be delighted to tell that one because Casey Stengel was, uh, you know, I've learned even more about Casey Stengel as time has gone on because uh, when I wrote uh, American Jews in America's Game that was published in 2013, Marty Appel uh, from New York, who used to be the public relations manager of the Yankees in his 20s yet, uh, who's written over 20 baseball books, um, wrote a book about Casey Stengel, and he asked me a few questions, and I became even more interested in, in Stengel at that time. Anyway, I lived in Brookline, you know, all my life since maybe the age of two, and we lived on Gibbs Street in Brookline, and that was like a stone's throw from Braves Field. And uh, so I started uh, thinking about the Braves and watching the Braves when I was maybe 10 or 11. So that takes us back to the beginning of World War II and the 10 years before the Braves left town. And uh, being so close, we used to go over over there all the time and turn styles or latch on to a guy and say, you're my dad today because they <laughs> let sons in free of if their father took them in. And uh, so we saw lots of games. There was before a lot of nightball and it was day games usually started at 3 o'clock, and it was after school hours, usually. And uh, so Bracefield was a natural place to go, and the Braves had some good players. The Red Sox, of course, were the most popular team in town, but the Braves had a lot of good players, won the pennant in 1948 and played Cleveland in the World Series. Anyway, Casey Stingle, I, I found out since. Now, Casey Stingle was a good player from, uh, I think his years in the major leagues were like uh, 1910, to 1923 of four, had a lifetime average of about 290. One year he hit in the 360s. Uh, he uh, was the first guy to ever hit a home run inside the park at Yankee Stadium in a, uh, I guess, a preseason game. And But the thing about Casey Stingle's playing career, Ken, was that he was, Ty Cobb was the great player during that period. There were other great players, but of course Ty Cobb was sensational. And Casey Stingle was a good player, but he was almost as famous as Ty Cobb. Why? Because he was a personality even then. He did outrageous things. One time he came up to the plate and he disagreed with an umpire's uh, decision earlier in the game, so he takes off his cap and a canary flies out. Yeah, I yeah. mean, this guy, this guy had personality to spare. So anyway, he, as a manager after his playing career, he, he generally was a losing manager. It was only late in his career when he managed the Yankees to all those world championships in a row that he became, uh, in the 1950s, that he became famous as a manager. And one of his stints as a manager was with the Braves during World War II. And one of the things that happened to him, unfortunately, was that in Kenmore Square, one night, one rainy night, a taxi hit him, broke his leg, 
during the baseball, early in the baseball season, and grievously injured him. So he was in the hospital for a while, and he didn't wasn't able to return to the team for a couple of months. And uh, so, as I say, we used to go to a lot of games. And after the games, the players would come out on the third base side of the grandstand uh, between the grandstand and the pavilion out there. Uh, there was a walkway, and that's where they would come out, and the manager would come out. So. I went to the. I was at a ball game with a kid named Marty Sacklad, still alive. He was a dentist at Newton, and uh, we were both born within ten days of each other in February 1931. So, Marty, if you're listening, I'm telling a story about you, <laughs> and uh, he doesn't even remember this, but I remember it. And uh, so, what happened? Uh, he disagreed with one of Casey's decisions. In late in the game, he thought he should have sacrificed. This is, a, you know, Marty at that time was like 11 years. I think this is 1944, three or four, so we were 12 or 13. And um, so Marty disagreed with the decision that he, should, he said he should have bunted instead of hitting away. Maybe the guy hit into a double play. So w- w- when when Casey came limping out on his crutches, uh, obviously pained not only by his leg by, but by his team, Marty says, we started a conversation with him, and Marty says, well, why did you do that? Well, you should have sacrificed Bunnett. So that you should have ordered a sacrifice bunt. So Casey answered him in what was obfuscatory, uh, unintelligible to us, and later became known as Stingalese. Yeah. And, uh, he, and even the Congress of the United States was puzzled <laughs> yeah. when yeah. Stingle later appeared before the Congress. And answered a question, and all the all these politicos were looking at each other and saying, "God, he must be right because we don't know what the hell he's talking about." So that um, so that that was his answer, and uh, that you know he was he was a character all the way through. And then uh, I think that I think that my, the title of Marty Appel's book that he wrote about Stingle only a couple of years ago, which sold very well, was. It's something to the effect Casey Stingle, baseball's greatest character. Greatest character, and uh, yeah, that's what it was. You're, you're right on it, and <laughs> and uh, so that um, and he he was. I mean, and, but he was underrated as a player. I mean, he was a very good outfielder and a good player. And you know, he he studied to be a dentist. Yep. But like the guy on the Red Sox, um, Jim Lombard. Uh, no, it, yeah, who became a dentist. But then there's the fella did all those extravaganzas, uh, Charles Steinberg, Dr. Charles Steinberg, ah. who was more uh, – so that both of them were more adept at pulling rabbits out of hats or birds out of uh, – yeah, by doffing their cap than pulling teeth. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it's a true story or not, but I heard that – well, first of all, Casey – had a car accident or got got hit by a cab or a car. That's it. And 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 people wanted to get up a petition to thank the cab driver for doing them a favor. <laughs> well, I never heard that, Ken, but that's possible because <laughs> those teams with those teams were horrendous. And right. uh, but Casey was a tough guy. You know, he didn't get along particularly with uh, Joe DiMaggio. Didn't like him a lot. And um, yeah, well, DiMaggio he played first base in one game. Casey made him play first base. Did he really? Yep. And DiMaggio said never again. <laughs> yeah, you didn't know that story? <laughs> no, I know. Yeah, that was Casey's first year in New York. Really? Okay. He made he or her first or second year. He made DiMaggio, He thought DiMaggio would be a good first baseman. Yeah. And Joe said never again. So but listen, Joe. Joe was a great player, but not. You know, he he could be testy as a person. Absolutely. All right. L- names, 
Sibby Sisti, uh, Tommy Holmes. Uh, Tommy Holmes was great. Uh, um, and, of course, Spawn and Sane and Pray for Rain. Both, Talk both about all those guys. Well, let's see. I, I mean, a name like Sibby Sisti. Sibby. Well, you know, I mean, some of these guys had great names. <laughs> Sibby Sisti. They had another guy who played shortstop who couldn't hit a lick. Whitey Wheedleman. <laughs> that, yeah. And then they had uh, a guy in the outfield who had an amazing total one year during the war of 25 or 27 outfield assists, Carden Gillenwater. Actually, I know that name. My father knew that name. Yeah. So I know who he is. Yeah, he was. Uh, he played maybe four or five seasons in the major leagues, but the only full season he played was one of the war years, forty-four or forty-five, with the Braves. And uh, he had, um, he did have all that. Uh, you know, that's a lot of assists. I mean, uh, if an outfielder gets five, seven assists in a season, that's a big deal. Uh, and uh, you know, like Mookie Betts, I mean, he's considered oh, got a wonderful outfielder and a great arm. I don't know how many assists he had last year, 10 or 11 or something like that. So Gillenwater must have been able to play. Um, Herb Goodwin, the brother of the great speechwriter uh, for, for JFK, uh, used to, he was like eight or nine, younger than I am. He's passed away since. Um, but he used to be out at Braves Field because he lived right around the corner. And uh, he couldn't get near Tommy Holmes because everybody wanted to jump on his back after the game. The, the, the kids used to come out and they jump on the backs of the players. So he would jump on the back of Cardin Gillenwater. And Gillenwater finally recognized him and said, you know, I've seen you before and I've given you a million autographs. And why do you keep coming and jumping on my back? Well, I, so uh, Herb explained to him that he said that uh, I can't get near the, the other guys. So I picked you and you're a nice guy and you keep giving me those autographs. And uh, so one day... Uh, he said, who else have you tried to get near uh, and uh, picked me instead? Oh, Stan Musial. Stan Musial had a deferment because of his mother, and he was heads and shoulders the best batter in the National League and uh, wartime or peacetime. And um, so uh, he, Gillenwater was so flattered that he picked him uh, along with Stan Musial that he said, oh, you really missed a Musial? Wow. That's fantastic. Well, let me see. Sibby Sisti was a, a, a terrific. Uh, I I think of him mostly as a utility infielder, but he he was he was good. He lasted in the major leagues uh, for eight or nine years. Um, the other people you mentioned, I mean, Warren Spahn was absolutely he did, he was a a prize rookie before the war, and but he didn't pitch very much, if at all, before the war. I think he won his first major league game after the war, and I think he won his first major league game at the advanced age after very valorous wartime service, as I remember it, pitching for the Braves in 1946 when he was like 25. And you would think that a guy 25 would not win the most games ever by a left-handed pitcher, uh, in baseball history, and I think that's a record that still stands, and that was Warren Spahn. He won, I don't know, 363 games. Yep. He was a perennial 20-game winner. He was a figure of my youth. He was a figure of my later years when I got married. I remember when we first moved into our house, my wife and I, it'll be 50 years this August, when we came home to the, was it as late as 1969 that he was still... No, maybe that was... Maybe, uh, I think, around 64 or 5. Because yeah, he, I think... Uh, he finished with the Mets, either the Mets or the Giants. Yeah, so that um, he was a fantastic pitcher. 
And and Johnny Sane was a great pitcher with a great curveball who later went on to be a great pitching coach. And uh, he was a very serious guy. I think he won 160 or 70 games. And he was a 20-game winner. He was a very, very fine pitcher. So that anybody who thinks the Red Sox had all the stars is wrong. The, the Braves had some really great players. I mean, Bob Elliott won the MVP in 1948, great third baseman, great clutch hitter, hit home runs. I can remember him to this day. He was the guy that led them to that championship. There was Earl Torgerson who played yeah. first base. And so, so before he came up, he was from, speaking of names, Snohomish, Washington. <laughs> and the groundskeeper said, I was talking to him one day in, before Earl came up. And he had a long major league career, like 10, 12, 13 years. So... Um, he, he said, oh, they got this kid coming up. He's going to be terrific. Earl Trojerson. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a Stengelese remark. <laughs> yeah. So, and I have lots of memories of Braceville. Yeah. You know, there was, did you, you've heard of the lady Lolly Hopkins, Ken? Yes. Well, Lolly Hopkins was uh, the Braves fan of all time. And I don't, I, th- I don't know that the Red Sox ever had a fan like Lolly Hopkins. She used to sit down low in the first base stands. you got to remember that back in those days, even though Braceville seated 35,000 people. Lots of games were attended by two, three, four thousand 4,000 people. So it was, it was different. It was bucolic. It was not a lot of noise. It was not today's baseball. It was yesterday's baseball. And uh, it was the baseball of my dreams. But Lolly would sit there with a megaphone and she'd harass the opposing players and um, through her megaphone. And she was there every day. And she was a great lady. So I used to, you know, I talked to people. I to that. I talk to people then, I talk to people now, that's what I do. So I talk to her, yeah, and, and, and she was very nice to me and always answered my questions, and then she'd go back to her megaphoning, and um, she was, um, if, if fans can have an influence on the play on the field, then um, Lolly, Lolly did that, Lolly Hopkins. I mean, uh, anybody can look her up. She's unbelievable. Yeah, the Dodgers had a lady like that named Hilda Chester. What was her name? Hilda Chester. Oh, yeah, think of that. Yep. Yep, she sounds like the same kind of woman. But uh, the Braves, you, well, you, you wrote something or about, about the Braves and the Braves. There is a Boston Braves Historical Society, which is still in existence in the Boston area. Well, you know something, Ken. you're a part of. Well, you know, it's, it's part of, you know, I'm, I love history. Yep, so uh, I. I am an elected fellow of the uh, uh, Massachusetts Historical Society. And we had a program last night on Fenway Park, as a matter of fact, as you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was the moderator of that, and uh, Dick Flavin was on there with me, and uh, Bill Nolan, both great people, uh, fantastic people. And um, so that uh, who knew that the Massachusetts Historical Society, which is the oldest historical society in the country and the most famous one except maybe for the Library of Congress, I, I kidded in my notice that uh, they have all the Adams papers. So I, in my notice to friends to come, I kidded around that Abigail and John Adams will be there, <laughs> come to meet them. <laughs> so that, um, uh, so that uh, you know, history means, means a lot to me. And the, the, I don't think the memory of the Boston Braves would be what it is today without the Boston Braves Historical Society. And uh, they, se- they still send out three or four newsletters a year um, and uh, they were all extremely informative about not only former players but fans and things like that. And they're interesting to read because 
they're well done, and uh, when you read them, it brings back uh, a time. And they have meetings from time to time. And a lot, most of the old Braves players have passed away. Uh, I can think of uh, a few that are still around. Um, the great left-hander that pitched for the Giants afterwards. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of his name. Um, who came up when he was a 19-year-old bonus baby. Uh, Johnny Antonelli. Yeah, Johnny Antonelli. Johnny Antonelli is a very elegant gentleman in his 80s now. Wow. And he pitched as a 19-year-old kid for the Braves, but his salad years were with the Giants. He was a 20-game winner and a terrific pitcher. Uh, and um, But they keep the memory of the Braves alive, and it's a great thing. That's how I first met Johnny Pesky. At one of their, he was a guest at one of their get-togethers, so it's very interesting. And um, so, uh, the, the name of the fellow that does it now, uh, you must know, Ken, uh, who writes the newsletters presently. I, I don't know his name, but I know Johnny Antonelli very well because he was from my hometown of Rochester, New York. Oh. And started a tire company, the huh. Johnny Antonelli Tire Company. Uh -huh. So I remember that name and remember when he played for the Giants and when he retired, he moved to Rochester and started his own business. Uh -huh. So I know the name Johnny Antonelli very well. Now, the Braves, if my knowledge is correct, were the first team or one of the first teams to ever move from a city. Now, were they really in that bad a financial shape for Lou Perini and whoever else was connected with the team to say, we got to get out of here? Well, I don't think they drew a lot. Uh, I think the Red Sox were the favorites in town. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not privy to their books, but I think uh, it was a combination of not doing that well in Boston and a big opportunity in Milwaukee. And who can fault them because they went to, uh, they went to Milwaukee and they did extremely well. And uh, that was uh, the year that they moved. The last year in Boston, I think, was 1952. And that year, their prize rookie was Eddie Matthews, who was yeah. a Hall of Fame player. And uh, the next guy that was coming up from the minor leagues was Hank Aaron, whose first year was the next year when they were in Milwaukee. And add to that, um, Warren Spahn and uh, Vern Bickford and a bunch of other guys and I think they, I don't, it didn't take them long to win a world or win a pennant and maybe a world championship in Milwaukee and uh, and then Atlanta and uh, you know still the same Braves uh, and um, I think maybe I think maybe the choice that the three little steam shovels as yeah, they call those what guys they call them, yeah. yeah made I think it was a sound business decision it, it, it maybe it was a harbinger of things to come because before that, owners sort of treated their teams like toys. And uh, when they started to make decisions based on business and money, that started to transmute the game into not from a million-dollar enterprise to a multi-million or billion-dollar enterprise. And then along came Marvin Miller and players got became – had the ability to be free agents and make their own deals and really get the money they were worth, and the whole face of the game changed. Some say for good, some say for bad. I would say some for good, some for bad. I mean, I certainly enjoyed baseball when <laughs> when only the aficionados were out there. <laughs> now now baseball is, is ju it's, it's just different. It's much more money-oriented. 
But that's America, and uh, we have to accept uh, those changes. Uh, life has changed in many other ways. I mean, uh, you know, I can't believe when I started to practice law, I was still using uh, carbon paper, and uh, whoever who knew that uh, I couldn't believe what happened when computers came along. And if I want to write books, which I still do and do, you have to learn something about computers <laughs> and communications and uh, digital and uh, and my wife never took up on it and she she says uh, you know how, how are you getting that to them and I said I'm going to scan it and send it if I can't scan it and send it I'll take a picture of it and send it she says you can do that I said <laughs> yeah I said yeah you can do that <laughs> yeah that's like being able to listen to Vince Scully in your living room just as locally as listening to a local station around here on an iPhone. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, look, you can you can uh, Skype to people on the North Pole. I, you know, I mean, that's maybe a little extravagant. I don't know how many whether you can get reception up there. But you can get reception practically any place. Yeah, and you can see people's faces who are thousands of miles away in real time. So it's a different world altogether. But you know, Ken, we're sitting here face to face. Yep, and nothing. Nothing. Nothing beats that, does it? No, nothing beats face-to-face. -face, exactly. Whether it's you or a young woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, let's talk a little bit about modern ba I mean, I, I may be naive, but I was talking to a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago, and everybody says, well, ball players are in so, so much better shape now with weight rooms and exercise coaches and this and that. But I never heard... At least myself, when guys like Mantle, Mays, Musial, Williams were around, I never heard of obliques being pulled or, uh, you know, guys like an Aaron Judge who starts the season and he's out for two or three months. I never heard of things like that when I was growing up. Well, he um, is saying that they were in as good shape as uh, we are. As yeah. I think that um, I think the great look. Uh, let's put it this way. Somebody who has a great talent, who neglects that talent, uh, is is a loser. Somebody who has, but most people who have a great talent are smart enough to nurture that talent. Whether it's Mookie Betts today, who's always taking batting practice, or or Martinez, who's always studying his stroke. You know, if you look at his form, it's not great form, but he somehow has it figured out. Uh, to how to hit the ball to the opposite field, and he keeps himself in shape, and he studies the game. Those older players that you mentioned, like Williams and Spahn, you know, Williams played to 42, Spahn played into his 40s, Musial played into his 40s. Those guys nurtured their talent by taking care of their bodies, and um, they knew that even though they might make it look easy on the field, even a guy like Ted Williams, you can... You know, people look at Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and say, well, how could that, how'd that guy do that? I mean, he, he's, he had it all in his head. He just wrote it down. You know, he was maybe the world's greatest genius ever, but even Mozart, even if he wrote it in his head, and we know from things that have come down that he didn't often, well, his, his, his wife threw away his manuscripts that he had worked on because and not used as the final draft because she didn't want people to know that he actually thought about it and worked on it and uh, worked at it and uh, she, because every she wanted everybody to think he did it just you know so easily nobody does it all that easily and uh, Ted Williams Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart Babe Ruth um, they all study their craft and it's those people who study their craft 
And if it's an athletic endeavor, take care of their bodies. And if it's a mental endeavor, they too have to take care of their bodies because your body, your mind is going to decline if you don't take care of your body. Um, so that, um, yeah, um, they go through all this stuff now, but I don't know that it's totally new at all. All right, let's talk is about— Is that the question you asked? No, I, 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 it seems to me all this equipment and what they've got now with exercise machines, Nautiluses, and everything else, it seems like there's a lot more injuries now than there used to be when the guys that we talk about, like Mantle, Ruth, Musial, everybody, was playing ball. <laughs> well, you know, Ty Cobb, even though he played for 24 seasons, he did miss a lot of games. If you look at his record— uh, he Some seasons he played only 120 or 30 games. Uh, some players are more prone to injury. Um, now, and maybe they're a little more babyish now. Yeah, but I'll tell you why, it seems to me. Um, because these guys get paid so much money that they don't want to endanger their bodies. So what they do is they, they may go on the – they may get themselves placed on the injury list because – well, here's a good example, Ken. Okay. Al Rosen, you remember him? Yeah, the Cleveland Indians. Yeah, the, he was the most valuable player in 1953, unanimously. Yep. First unanimous. Uh, manager of the Yankees. And... Uh, yeah, and he was the general manager of the Giants. Giants, and He was the yeah. president of the Yankees. And yep. Anyway, the year he won, almost won the Triple Crown, uh, he was sort of jobbed out of it because Mickey Vernon was the opponent and uh, – Everybody was watching the scoreboard. I think uh, Rosen had three hits on the last day of the season, and Vernon was pulled from the game because uh, if he had gone up and gone hit and uh, gone without a hit, um, then Rosen would have been the batting champion. But anyway, Rosen had to retire at 32. This is sort of an ironic story because um, he had a thumb injury or something, and uh, the, but Hank Greenberg was. Uh, was the uh, uh, general manager of the Indians at the time. And Hank, listen, he was a great guy, but he was a tough general manager. And, uh, you know, their stories are sort of parallel. I mean, Hank Greenberg was Jewish and Al Rosen was Jewish, and they both were great players and uh, both went into the financial industry and then went back into baseball. But anyway, uh, Greenberg, Rosen should have been placed on the disabled list with his injury. But but uh, Greenberg said, we need a first baseman. You're a third baseman, but a uh, first baseman is injured. you got to play first base. So he played first base. Anyway, the upshoot of, upshoot of it all was that he was never the same player afterwards because that injury wasn't taken care of. He lost a lot of the grip on the bat and had to retire at 32 or 33. He should be in the Hall of Fame. He certainly would have been in the Hall of Fame. Uh, but uh, he was denied that because his career was relatively short. His period of dominance was six or seven or eight years. So I think that, um, I think that um, you know, th there's an example where if he had been taken care of, he would have played longer. All right. Uh, let's— um, Want to go back to the Braves? Yeah, yeah I was going to say, if, people, if, if there are people that want to join the Boston Braves Historical Society, what do they do? Who do they contact? Uh, I, the name has come to me. Bob Brady is now the fellow who's uh, the head of the Boston Braves Historical Association. Bob Brady is a very interesting guy who travels to foreign countries frequently 
um, on um, charitable missions, and he's the guy that's presently writing the newsletter. And um, I think if you look on the Internet, under Boston Braves Historical Association, you'll easily find the content uh, contact uh, information, Boston Braves Historical Association. Actually, what brought me to your table today, Ken, was a story I wrote for that newsletter called Braves Field Days, really a memoir of my young years, about which I've told a little bit today. Um, and um, so that Braves Field Days appeared in their 2011 uh, issue in summertime. And then I you know, I sort of forgot about it. And then um, Marty Appel brought it back to my attention because it was interesting Casey Stingle, who's mentioned in that story. And I pulled it out and I read it, and it was so far back that it was like reading somebody else. <laughs> and I looked at it, and I said, hey. And I was laughing, and I said, this is funny. <laughs> Some of this stuff is really funny. So I put it back on my – I put it on my website, and uh, – I counted it as one of my authorial efforts uh, in my writing career. Uh, it really had been out of mind, out of mind. And then you picked it up, Ken, and you yep. really liked it, <laughs> yeah. and called me back here. So I said, "My God, I mean that—that's something." Yeah. You think about, hey, I didn't know I was that good. <laughs> that's right, exactly. <laughs> I, I broadcasting has been my life, and I look back at broadcasting. And was a big. I grew up in New York, in Rochester, and I was a big Yankee fan back then. Back in the days of Mel Allen and Red Barber, and think about how different broadcasting was. You saw guys like a Jackie Robinson, a Warren Spawn, a Roy Campanella, uh, a Leo DeRocher when he managed the Dodgers. Do you ever think back to those days, like I do, of broadcasting? I do, um, because as I've said earlier today. Um, it was uh, like it was bucolic. Uh, it was it was much closer to the baseball that was played on the Elysian Fields in New Jersey when the game was young in the 19th century than it is today. I mean, going out to even Fenway Park, Bracefield, Fenway Park. I mean, you know, they didn't fill the park all the time, and to go out and watch uh, Ted Williams. I used to sit, sit myself in the third base stands so I could get the. The, the broad view of the length of the home runs and the height of the home runs or the line drives, top spin line drives that he would hit. Uh, I, I like the view from there. And in Braves Field, um, I can remember going with my uncle, Sel, who was my mother's brother, who was studied aerial reconnaissance photographs in the, in the campaign in North Africa in the middle of the war, World War II. And he, he went, graduated Harvard and had an economics degree, just came back from the world, lived with us for a while. And we went out to the ball game, and I can remember Jackie Robinson sliding into second base in a big cloud of dust and I can uh, and beating the throw naturally. He was a great <laughs> player. And um, I can remember the Braves sat in uniforms, which wasn't a great idea, but they did it. And, they, and the other player, they had guys like Max West and Chet Ross and – Eddie and uh, I think his name was Eddie Miller. The shortstop was a terrific fielder. Connie Ryan was a great second baseman. Um, they had uh, uh, earlier they had uh, Wally Berger, who set the major league record, which I think still stands for home runs by a rookie at 38. And uh, wow. so 
they had guys that could play. And um, so it was fun to go out to Bracefield. Spahn, Sane, A Day of Rain, Vern Bickford. <laughs> um, they had uh, Del Crandall, who was a great catcher. Yeah, I know that um, name. They had, um, uh, they had uh, other people that were really outstanding. Um, and during the war, they had some guys that couldn't play except for the war. They had a guy named Joe Mack who had a perpetual five o'clock shadow who played first base for a while. They had the aforementioned uh, guy that uh, that played uh, center field uh, mm-hmm. that, that I spoke about before with all the assists, Carden Gillenwater. <laughs> and even I love during, that name. <laughs> and even during the war, you could see Stan Musial now. There was a Unbelievable player. They used to talk about. They talked about his hitting for good reason, but he was a great defensive player as well. I remember one day watching at Braves Field, and he he made one of those tumbling acrobatic catches where the you know these outfielders the way they dive for the ball and turn somersaults. Yeah, you got to be athletic for that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, I'm going to mention two names in broadcasting: Fred Hoy and Jim Brett. Fred Hoy, I don't remember. Jim Brett, I do remember, and even last night we were discussing him over at the Mass Historical Society because we were talking about broadcasters, old broadcasters, and uh, I guess Jim Brett made a bad decision when the Braves left town. He he didn't go with him. He didn't go with him, and he went someplace else, and his career was never quite the same after that. Um, yeah, I think broadcasters are so important. I mean, you know, you're a broadcaster, and uh, I think that the whether it's radio or television, earlier the the really more colorful guys were on radio, and but now with the players have come along, and you know, guy like Dennis Eckersley is terrific because you know Dennis, the players know the game, yep. and when you get a guy, and, and you know, even the, even the previously uh, man of of questionable reputation, A-Rod, turns out to be not only very well attired, but very well spoken. And uh, so you get a few surprises here and there. But these guys have been through it all. They've played the game. Yep. So the, the Dennis Eckersley not only is knows the game, but he's, he's funny, uh, he's literate, uh, he has the words, he has eccentric expressions, and the women love him because <laughs> he's a handsome guy. I mean, my wife's a great baseball fan, but when, when Dennis is, is broadcast, oh, Dennis is there. Oh, yeah. I said, oh, God. Can't and, leave uh, this on. We can't turn on the radio. Yeah. And Jerry Remy, he's yeah. terrific. But, when it, but before that, um, we have a lot to thank uh, radio and television announcers for because, uh, you know, a guy, the guy out in uh, Los Angeles um, – that was so great for so long, Vin Scully. Vin Scully, and uh, Red Barber was, yep. uh, and and uh, Mel Allen. These guys were mythical, and um, they uh, they knew the game and brought the game home to us. So that uh, that was so that I think broadcasting has been a very an, an integral part of um, of the popularity. Of baseball, and I still think of baseball as the national game because football is so brutal and so questionable. And I don't know whether it'll continue to exist, but baseball will always exist. Why? Because you cannot destroy that game. It's such a beautiful game that even though they want to make billions of dollars out of it and they do things that sort of undermine the game itself, 
I really wasn't in favor of uh, of them doing these replays because I liked the human aspect, and rather than you know uh, having it challenged and all the rest of it, I didn't like that. Even though umpires are wrong, but that's part of the game. But anyway, that's something else. Um, baseball is a great game. Yep. All right. It's funny. My wife and I get in these discussions all the time. I don't like ESPN broadcasting coverage of television games. I I don't like interviews in the middle of a game when your play is going on on the field and you're sitting there talking to a pitcher or a catcher or whatever, and there's play still going on and, and they don't comment on it. They can go for almost half an inning. Drives me crazy. Well, I think you're right um, because the um, because those kind of things should be before the game and after the game. And I think I think the game should be at a distance from the viewer while it's being played. And I don't think that the managers particularly care. I mean, they got to go along with their work and they do what's in their contract. They got to cooperate. But I mean, to have a manager talking about the pitching performance of a guy that's still pitching and how do you think the game's going to go and whatever they ask them is intrusive. <laughs> and also, if you're watching, you know, sometimes you're watching and you know that the next pitch is about to be thrown. And they, they come back to it the last second and say, for God's sakes, get me back to the game. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, you have written a book or, or a great deal about the history of Fenway Park. Is that correct? Yeah, I wrote a, um, I wrote a memoir called My 82-Year Love Affair with Fenway Park. Now it's about 84. <laughs> um, my 82-Year Love Affair with Fenway Park uh, from Teddy Ballgame to Mookie Betts. And I think those two guys are good to bookend uh, such a memoir because even though I started watching games when my father took me in 1936, three years before Ted Williams came up, um, still there's point in that because the day he took me out there, it still was open in right field. There were no bullpens because those were put in when Williams came. And um, so we stood in the fenced-off outfield to watch the game. Lou Gehrig was in that game. My father told me I don't remember that much, but... He told me that. But, you know, from Ted Williams, and now Mookie Betts, I think, is the signature player in the Red Sox because he can do anything. There's nothing. There's no baseball skill he doesn't have. Um, I don't know whether they can keep him because he'll want so much money. That was one of my next questions. Yeah, go ahead. Do you think that they will keep him? I mean, when I I look back on some of the things that have happened, like when they signed, uh, um, they lost John Lester, Mm. uh, which to me is still upsetting. Stupid. Uh, they they stupid stupid. Yet they paid big salaries to people like Josh Beckett, yeah. Carl Crawford. Yeah. They eventually got rid of them. Yeah. Um, and and Mookie Betts, I'm I'm worried about what's going to happen. Well, I think a little bit. Of, I think it's a two way street. Um, first of all, Mookie Betts. I call him a six tool player. Why? Because uh, he can hit and hit with power, run, field, throw. So uh, people say, well, what's the six tool? So I say, smiles. <laughs> um, so, you know, Mookie Betts has a great personality. He's going to become the absolute face of baseball because not only is there nothing he can't do on the field, but he's a very centered, grounded young man who was brought up correctly, whose values are in place, and who wants to test his value on the market. And why shouldn't he? This is America. But he, he he's going to command, I don't know, $40 million a year or something like <clears throat> that. Now, if I could talk to Mookie Betts, and I'll get to talk to him, but I'm sure he's thought about the same thing. Fenway Park, he, he, he'll never find a place to play that's more 
that's better for him than Fenway Park because he can hit the ball to left field for a lot of home runs, and now he's learning to hit for power to center field and right field. And it's got the biggest right field in the major leagues. His fielding prowess is at a peak in a place where there's room to show it. So he, it's really – and a lot of guys like Mo Vaughn and oh, yeah. have left Boston and they've never been the same afterwards. I would say to him, Mookie, stay here. The, place <laughs> is, the fans love you. The place is built for you. Give up a few million dollars. <laughs> yeah. So that um, – and so it depends – the Red Sox want to keep him. Why well, wouldn't sure they? Why wouldn't they? I mean, yeah. I exactly. Mean, this guy is – he hasn't reached his apogee yet. I mean, God knows how – 346 – with a, the figures he had last year, unbelievable, and he's he's doing fine this year. And he, you know, if if he ha- if the rest of the year he plays like he did the first forty games of last year, he'll still have he'll have the same statistics. So that um, I, uh, I, you know, it's hard to say. Yeah. I, I I think he probably would take a little bit of a home home team discount. Depends on what other teams come up with. Um, yeah, the Red Sox want to keep him. I hope he stays here because he's just a natural fit. I mean, guys like that come along once in a generation. You don't want to lose them. That's what people thought about Jacoby Oldberry, which brings me to a question of long-term contracts. I mean, Robinson Cano, Jacoby, Jacoby Ellsbury, Bryce Harper, all these guys, 10, 13-year I mean, these contracts last longer than some careers. Um, yeah, I mean, look and they don't Dustin, play him long enough. You know, even Dustin Pedroia. I mean, he took a hometown discount, but now they're paying him beyond his ability to play. I mean, he's a, he was a wonderful player, but who knows if he can play again? Um, and the guys you mention, I think, are overpriced. I keep looking at Bryce Hopper, and I say, why do people? I mean, for most of last year, he was hitting two twenty, and now he's hitting two twenty again. And I'm saying. Why do they make such a fuss over this guy? I mean, yeah, he can hit the ball in the upper yep. deck, and he's a he's a, he's a, he can hit for power. But gee, my God, he's not that good. And <laughs> some of these, are, and you know, a lot of these other players, they give long term contracts to and Cano and people and guys do fade yep. um, early in their careers sometimes, and that could conceivably happen to Mookie Betts. He's losing his hair, so will he lose his ability? I don't think so because he's got such an athletic ability and body that it's dubious, but you, you really don't know. Um, you're taking a chance. I mean, to be an owner and to be signing people for that kind of money, you have to scratch your head and say, what am I doing? Am I doing the right thing? I mean, got to look at it from their point of view. So that uh, And I knew Marvin Miller quite well because yeah. I interviewed him for my book, American Jews in America's Game. He was a wonderful guy. I don't even think he dreamed that the players would be making this much money. Yeah. They certainly ought to be free agents. They ought to be able to bargain for their own services. To go back a minute, Ken, uh, yeah, that that um, memoir that I just spoke about, um, my 82-year love affair, Fenway Park. If you go, if the if you go to my website, which is under the name of the book I wrote in 2013. American Jews and America's Game.com, which was chosen the best baseball book that year by Sports Collectors Digest. American Jews and America's Game.com. It's not just, just about Jewish guys, it's about everybody. It's about America, American Judaism over the last 30 years. It's a cultural book, it's about people. Um, you know, I don't think of myself, uh, you know, I mean, it has that title because that was the people I was interviewing, but. 
you know, they were interacting with all these other players. It's really about – it's about America and yeah. uh, the America we love. And um, so if you go to the memoir page of that website, one click will take you to the memoir, which has been seen already by millions of people because the Red Sox sent it out. And it has pictures of Ted Williams looking so handsome <laughs> and Mookie Betts with such a big smile and me looking old, old. <laughs> and uh, Mookie Betts making that catch uh, that he made uh, against uh, in uh, the playoff game a couple of years ago against uh, the team that's visiting this weekend from uh, d- uh, from uh, Houston. Dallas, from uh, Houston. Houston. And um, yeah, it has, and it has a picture of me and the now ill-famed Alan Dershowitz, <laughs> who's a friend. Yeah, I know uh, Alan Dershowitz. Yeah, yeah. and uh, we we did a couple of games. We called a couple of games down on Martha's Vineyard where he lives. And uh, I don't know, Alan's had he's a brilliant guy, and uh, yep. but he's he's somehow he's being construed as a Trump supporter. But I don't know. But uh, you know, Alan Alan and I get along very well. But anyway, the story is. Um, is, uh, you know, I recount a lot of things that happened to me at Fenway Park over the years in a sort of, you know, hopefully colorful, eccentric, odd style that I adopt. That's really me. That's how I am. So that um, natural, you know. So I think if you read it, it's like 65 pages. You can read it in an hour or so. And it's fun. Um, you, you like that. And uh, lately I finished a book on classical music that will be published, and I've been commissioned to write a book on how to write memoir and so forth. So I'm having fun in in various fields, but you know, baseball will always be part of my life. Well, I got to tell you, you and I could talk for hours. I mean, uh, the, the, this program is nothing. We if we did a if we sat here, we could talk for three hours and record it all and put it on CD and sell it. Uh, you are a very entertaining and very wonderful gentleman, and it is always a pleasure to sit down and talk with you. And I, I can't thank you enough for coming in here today to do it again a second time to see fit enough to come in here and sit down with me for another hour. Well, I, you, listen, Ken, you know, you're a special person because, you know, you've had you've been sight challenged for many years. And, you know, there was a, there was an article in the uh, Globe, uh, an op-ed article like two days ago, and it, it spoke about the studies they've done about people who have purpose in life live much longer than people who don't have purpose in life. And so I never wanted to retire because I, 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 I you know, I practiced law for over 40 years and still I get called occasionally. But I don't want to practice law. I want to write books at this particular point. That's my purpose in life. And, and it's true because every day I get up, there's something to do, whether it's to come to talk to you on the radio or continue <laughs> writing a book or whatever the hell it is. Oh, look at young women. We don't want to forget that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> neither, neither will they. <laughs> and so th- it, it does extend life, and you're one of those people. You know, you're married, and you, you're you a great broadcaster. You've been a, a legendary broadcaster for years. You have a purpose, and uh, you you follow it every day. And uh, who would not respond to you to come speak on your program? <laughs> They'd have to be nuts. First of all, it's always great to see you. Thank you for saying those words. And I, look, I mean, uh, you want to do it a third time? <laughs> oh, I'm sure we'll find something we can talk about. And if we if we concentrate really hard, I'm yeah, sure that we'll right. come up with something. I'm sure we could. And you can contact me anytime and we'll work it out. Okay. So, Larry, thank you again for coming in here. And that will do it for this edition of City Talk. So long, everybody.
You're clear. That was good. Oh, good. I'm thinking. That was great.